Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So, Kellen, we are in for a real treat today. I'm super excited. And the reason is that we're actually going to be interviewing John Michael Greer. And for those of you who don't know, JMG is the author of more than 70 books, many of which are on Collapse. He's well known in the Collapse community. We've mentioned him several times up to this point in the podcast. Taken straight from his bio, he's a widely respected author and blogger. He talks about a range of things from nature spirituality to what we're most focused on here, and that is the future of industrial society. He lives in Rhode Island with his wife, Sarah, and we're super grateful that he could find the time to make this work with us. All right. Well, we've got JMG joining us. Thank you so much, John, for being here. It's a huge honor for us to be able to get to, to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me on. I always appreciate having a chance to you know chat with other people interested in the situation and, and its outcomes. Yeah, I, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. We've been looking forward to this a lot, and I know our listeners have been as well. We put a little thing mm-hmm. out on, on Reddit asking for some listener questions, so we'll ask some cool. of those into the podcast as well. I will look forward to it. Awesome. Well, maybe to get started, you know, we kind of want to know, where did this all begin for you? How did your journey start in learning about collapse and caring about it? Okay, this goes back a long ways, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Well, <laughs> not actually that far away. But um, back in the 1970s, it was very easy to find out about the risk of collapse. There were, um, let's see, 1973 was when The Limits to Growth was published. There was mm-hmm. a lot of literature in those days talking about um, why it was a really stupid thing to plan on infinite growth on a finite planet. And also, of course, talking about some of the planets, some of, some of the uh, 
difficulties with the easy assumption that, well, we can just mine the galaxy or what have you. Um, and then that got stuffed down the memory hole in right after 1980. Ronald Reagan won one election to the White House, and he and all the media and the whole establishment piled into it's morning in America. We don't have to do any of that stuff. Pedal to the metal. Everything's fine. The future will take care of itself. Um, the future did not take care of itself. What happened was that to get past, you, you probably have heard about the, the energy crises we had back during the 70s when the U.S. Um, reached its own peak of petroleum production and, and ran and into major economic troubles. Yeah, the mm -hmm. embargoes, and there was a whole series of problems with, with energy. So what happened was that we opened up the North Slope in Alaska and literally pumped it flat out. Oil reserves that could have kept this country going on a more modest level for decades, we burned through them at a blinding rate to prop up a temporary prosperity. That was what happened during the Reagan years, and that enabled people to, well, in, let me say, that enabled the establishment and their pet media to erase the reality of the predicament that we're in by saying, well, it's not a problem now. Um, wait a few years. Okay, fast forward. Um, some of us kept kept watch on things. We were going, oh, you don't want to do this. But you know, most people were going, hey, it's morning in America. Everything's fine. So fast forward to the late 1990s, and people started looking at um, oil reserves again. And we're going, hold it. There's a major problem taking shape here. And that was the birth of the, of the peak oil movement. Right. And we made it, it. It it had its ups and downs, but it made some real, some very successful calls. Um, at a time when oil was running typically nine bucks a barrel, people were saying, you know, this is going to break twenty or thirty. You know what it is now, sixty dollars a barrel, and it's a major burden on the global economy. Um, so there were some mistakes made. We can get to those, but. In the wake of that, as, as the price of oil ratcheted upward, as other environmental problems started cutting in with increasing force, just as had been predicted back in the 70s, um, it became very clear that um, what happened in the, in the 1980s and 1990s was not that we'd solved our problems, it was just that we swept them under the rug for a few decades. And so I was able to pull out um, all of those books from the 70s and some of their sequels from the few people who, who actually didn't drink the Kool-Aid and start writing about the subject. And all of a sudden I found I had an audience, which was kind of surprising to me, but, but I never looked back. So uh, to some extent, I was, into, I was into collapse before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> But I was, I've, I've, been, I've been watching the, the trajectory of industrial society now um, since my teen years, and my teen years were a long time ago. <laughs> and it is not, I think, any evidence for the supposed intelligence of our species that so few people are willing to deal with the reality of our predicament. And so many people are just going back to the same dreary thought stoppers. I'm sure they'll think of something and similar pieces of non-thought to try to hide their heads in the sand from the mess that we're in. So I'm, I'm curious, what do you think it is about your personality that like you latched onto that and you were able to continue to learn about it and really dig mm -hmm. up the old research, whereas other people, like you said, might just stick their head in the sand or they just try and sweep it under the rug? Well, there, I, have, I have an advantage here. Not an advantage in a lot of things, but it is an advantage here. I have Asperger's syndrome. 
I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a condition related to autism. It doesn't mess with my, my language abilities, obviously. But one of the consequences of that is that I don't pick up on nonverbal cues. I don't pick up on hints. Um, social pressure goes zooming right past me. And so I'm not really vulnerable to a lot of the social pressure that kept every that made everyone else go, oh, I guess everything's fine now. So you know, I have I have slightly a slightly screwy nervous system, and in this case, it turned out to be a huge advantage. Do you feel like the Aspergers does that affect your ability to cope in a positive or negative way? Um, both. <laughs> it it makes it very well. It makes it very easy for me to focus on the data. And um, and to fo- and to focus on what I'm going to do about it, and not get caught up in some of in the sort of collective um, screaming that occupies so much time these days. On the other hand, it does limit my ability to communicate um, because I don't have that those nonverbal abilities that would might make me a really good speaker in public, say. So it's a mixed bag, like, like almost everything in life. Yeah. Well, you've definitely capitalized on your ability to write about this, uh, about these things. I, you have over, what is it, 70 books, I believe? Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's how I make my living. You know, when, um, it, it beats the heck out of flipping burgers. <laughs> and so that was going to be my next question. You know, mm-hmm. we, we talk about collapse as it being inevitable. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you feel that it's important to talk about it? Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put in a, a bit of nuance here. To explain that, because one of the major blind spots in the whole collapsitarian movement is a failure to recognize that collapse can be a drawn-out process. It's not that collapse could happen one of these days. Collapse has been happening for decades. It's just slow. We're you know we're not going to bed in a you know in in a space age Jetsons economy and waking up in a cave, <laughs> but. The fall of a civilization is a gradual process. It's a little bit every day. And so it's very like like the old metaphor of the frog. You put the frog in in the saucepan and put the water under it very gently, and the frog is cooked before it notices that it needs to hop out. That's right. how collapse happens. So we're actually very a, a noticeable distance down the curve. If you look back, for example, just, just one example pulled out of my hat, um, when I was a teenager, a middle a, a working class family with one working class income in America could afford a home. They could afford a car. They could afford three square meals a day. They could afford medical care. They could afford a normal lifestyle on one working class income. Now, a family of four on one working class income is living in the street. That's a huge transformation. Nobody talks about it because it right. didn't happen all at once. It happened a little at a time bit by bit as wages were driven down and costs, well, well, of course, we don't have inflation, but funny how costs keep on rising. (laughs) And so, yeah, a little at a time. And so that's the way that collapse is taking place around us right now. I mean, go, go, go for a walk sometime and look at the condition of the sidewalks. Look at the condition of the streets. If you remember what it looked, what those looked like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you'll realize collapse is happening. So what I'm trying to do is not to say, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know, something, some vast, horrible thing might happen tomorrow or the next day. What I'm trying to say is it's happening now. We're in the middle of it. This is what collapse looks like from inside. This is what people saw in Rome when the Roman Empire was in its, was in its terminal decline, when they looked out the window. 
This is what they saw. This is what people see, saw in every previous civilization. Of course, you know, variations. You don't get, you know, the technologies are slightly different. Um, the cultural habits are slightly different. The buzzwords are different and so on. But the basic patterns are the same. So that brings up a point, you know, we mm -hmm. try to make it very clear to our listeners, some of whom are very new to the idea of collapse, mm -hmm. that exactly like you just said, it's not one big event, it's something that happens slowly over time that's already mm -hmm. started and that's going to continue mm -hmm. very far into the future. Mm -hmm. So for you, you know, you talk about um, it could take not just decades, but centuries um, mm -hmm. There are other authors like Jared Diamond or Joseph Tainter that, that talk about in the very definition of collapse, it having to happen in a, a relatively quick period of time, maybe a decade mm -hmm. or so. Mm -hmm. So where do you believe that your outlook differs maybe from, from theirs? Okay. Um, Tainter is a fascinating case because if you read his book, The Collapse of Complex Societies, which is very mm -hmm. good, by the way, it's an extremely good book. But if you, re if you turn to the table number one in there and it lists examples of societies that have collapsed, None of them collapsed in a decade. All of them collapsed over a period of one to three centuries. And yet somehow he put that in the table and then didn't process it. Interesting. So the, the thing, the, there is a real prejudice here. There is this fixation on the idea of fast collapse. And I think it's a massive mistake. I think one of the reasons that so many people are not taking our situation seriously right now is that you've got people like Diamond, you've got people like Tainter, you've got um, people like Derek Jensen, who are talking about this, this you know, sudden, overwhelming, cataclysmic dot, dot, dot. And, of course, you have people who are saying it's going to happen on Thursday, you know, February 19th. Or what have you. Like, like, it's exactly the same as these folks who are convinced they know when Jesus is going to show up and the second coming is going to happen, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and they're always wrong. And I think that has done more to discredit the idea of collapse than anything else. And those of us who have been saying all along, and there are a number of us who have been saying all along, no, it's not like that. It takes time for a civilization to fall. You know, like what, what uh, to the joke I said, you know, Attila the Hun's mother used to say, no, no, Attila, Rome wasn't sacked in a day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's right. not a fast process. And this fixation on the, on the fast collapse mi mirage is what keeps people from realizing that we're going to collapse right now, that this is what it looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, like you said, it's kind of a turnoff to people to learning about it, because as soon as they hear that it's this big epic thing, or they think that, then, then they don't mm -hmm. want to hear about it, and they don't believe it. Yeah. And, and whereas if you, if, you point, if you point out the window and say, look at this, look at how the things have changed just in your own lifetime. And if you say that to people, and they think about it, and they don't just turn around and run, um, then you can actually start having a conversation. One of the other things that's very important about that is that since collapse is a slow process, it can be paused, it can be delayed, you have room to maneuver, you can decide what you want to save. It's not all over and then, you know, and then you pick up the pieces. And so by thinking about it as a fast, as a necessarily fast collapse, people are closing the opportunity to take constructive action. And I think that strikes me, that strikes me as a very bad idea. I've mentioned that I'm new to learning about collapse, mm -hmm. and it seems mm -hmm. like one of the battles that that we face in this kind of a platform where we're trying to teach about collapse or where Corey's mm -hmm. teaching me about collapse, the first thing is just getting people to be convinced that it is real and that it is coming. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But for for those that might actually believe that it's real, but they believe it's not going to really happen until centuries from now, mm-hmm. what is the what is the motivation to continue learning about it, or even to continue, or or, or to start making meaningful changes? Mm-hmm. Well, you've got to, first of all, you've got to start with people's motivations, because a lot of people. Oh, for a lot of people, collapse is, you know, well, yeah, it's going to happen someday, but I don't have to deal with it right now. And that's very much an emotional thing. They're going, well, you know, I don't want to think about that. So I'm going to say, yeah, 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 but, you know, 100 years from now. <laughs> and, um, but you, you, have to, you have to deal with the fact that people are not, human beings are not rational creatures. Okay, we're emotional creatures. We're creatures that are very heavily swayed by our feelings, by images, by symbols. And so anytime you deal with people in this kind of setting, you need to start there. Now, once you've gotten to the point that we're past that and we can actually start talking, again, the crucial point is to get them to notice that we're, it's not, collapse is not something in the future. It's something in the present. It's something we're already in. And if you, if you find that, and I certainly find that talking that way helps people to understand the world that they actually live in. If they say, you know, this makes sense where the standard narrative of perpetual progress towards some kind of imaginary Star Trek future simply doesn't fit my experience, then you can start talking. Then you can start really under helping them to understand what the world is doing and what their life is like and how they can, how they can work with the complex situation we're in uh, to have a decent life and to maybe make a contribution toward a better future. Because just because we're in decline doesn't mean the future has to be a nightmare. Interesting. I think one point that I think about a lot is the fact that where we were 50 years ago and mm-hmm. where we're going to be when we finally bottom out, right, at the very <laughs> tail end of collapse Ooh. is a very long way to fall. It's and a very long way to fall. Along the way, we're going to have moments where we're stumbling down this mountain and we fall off a 20 foot cliff, but it doesn't mean that we, we hit the bottom. And so, mm-hmm. you know, 2020 was a good example of that, of it was this kind of big kind of shocking thing to a lot of people, but it mm-hmm. was just kind of one step along the way. And so when mm-hmm. I think of, when I think of experiencing collapse, I think in my mind, I see a lot of those big falls where something goes wrong and it just never quite comes back to the way that it was before. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And if you, can, if you can get people thinking about it in those terms, okay, there's a crisis. If we can get through this crisis, and maybe everything won't be exactly the way it was beforehand, but we can pick up the pieces and we can do something constructive at that point. We can clue something together. We can put together what can be fixed. And so, yeah, exactly. 2020, I, I think 2020 was a real eye-opener for a lot of people. And I hope that it's, it becomes more possible to talk again about, about collapse, about decline, about the, the predicament that we're in as a society and as a species, and how we might deal with that more or less intelligently. So what would that look like for you in, if you had your way of being able to, to convince people and convince them to make changes? What mm-hmm. would be the, the best changes that you could see being made to, to make? Okay. That very straightforward. The first thing to do is to look at the various things that are being done that waste vast amounts of energy and resources and don't actually produce anything useful. Um, there's a lot of that. Much of our society is, is an, an energy-wasting phenomenon. And no, I mean, how many people really get any benefit out of um, 
so many of these these cheap electronic trinkets imported from China, you have, you have this electric Billy Bass that sings a stupid song when mounted on your wall. <laughs> right. Okay, My dad you know those. who actually who actually benefits noticeably from that? Okay, there's a lot of stuff, an enormous amount of today's life is simply a way of wasting as much energy and resources as possible, and could be eliminated without anybody suffering significantly. Right. So that's the first thing, to look at the obvious sources of waste, to ditch them, and to look at, okay, how can we conserve? How can we retrofit? How can we change our lifestyles, not in drastic ways, that's, it's, you know, we, that's, that's rarely successful, and at the moment it's not necessary, but basically, how do we take things down a notch so we can get under the curve rather than being yanked down as it drops up from under our feet? And then we can start saying, okay, what can we save? What are the technologies that we want to preserve and how can we preserve them on fewer resources and less energy? Um, what are the technologies that used to be used that were that produced as good a result as the stuff we have now and maybe use less energy, less resources? How can we bring those back into process? One of my books actually is, is entirely focused on that. It's, it's, the title is Retrotopia. And it's, it's set in the future and um, after the United States collapses in a civil war, but we can leave that aside. Um, <laughs> but one of, the, one of the republics that came into existence out of the remains of the United States has gone toward this retro technology thing. And they've actually been able to make it work. It's, it's kind of my answer to Ernest Kallenbach's Ecotopia which was very famous, uh, again, back in the 70s. But it very much works on the idea of, okay, what, what, if we, what if we treat the past as a resource for technologies? How, what kind of a life could we build for ourselves using technologies from, say, the earlier parts of the 20th century or the latter parts of the 19th century? Mm-hmm. What did they have that we've forgotten that might make a better life for everybody? And so the, I did it in a, in a novel format, of course, because, you know, you want, it, you want to do that. You want to do the, the story of the guy coming in from outside and going, these people are really strange, and then figuring out why what they're doing works. Right. So, so there's, there's a lot that can be done, and the sort of retrotopia trip is, is an important part of it, but it's not the only part of it. It's just, it's a matter of looking at our situation, recognizing that we've got this ongoing contraction in resources and energy and, and a range of other things. We need to decrease the amount of pollution we're producing. We need to decrease our, our use of non-renewable um, raw materials. And we can do that without and, you know, waking up one morning in a cave. So you talk about um, retrotopia and sort of that vision of, of the future as being kind of what you, what you hope for. Uh, you also mm-hmm. have Dark Age America, which kind of <laughs> hints towards a much darker um, decline, mm-hmm. right? So I'm curious, mm-hmm. which, which side do you think wins and, and what do you see kind of the future heading towards? Okay, at this point, it's, up in, it's completely up in the air. At this point, the, the, you know, the, the coin has been tossed, but it has not yet landed. Um, I think there is still a very real chance that we could pull off something rather retrotopian. I think there is also a very real chance that we could plunge all the way into dark age conditions. There's also various points in between. It is not an either or. I use the metaphor of a coin, but it's more a sphere or say a D20 if you, if you're into role playing games, um, you know, somebody's talking about twenty change. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But does it come out as a one or does it come out as a twenty? Well, it could come out anywhere in between. Yeah. So but the the important thing, in fact the most important thing I think right now, is that it's not settled yet. 
we still have a lot of room for flexibility in helping to shape the outcome. And that's one of the reasons I want to see more people um, take an interest in our situation, get out of the, the sort of civil religion of, of worshiping progress as though we're an omnipotent God, and actually pay attention to the mess that we're in. So you focus a lot on catabolic collapse and mm-hmm. it being a, a systemic issue. I know a lot of people who are, um, are talk about collapse are really focused on climate change. And I know from your mm-hmm. books that you mentioned, you recognize that climate change is a significant factor and that it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people view it as uh, the the cause, you know, if, if something mm-hmm. else doesn't get us, if catabolic collapse doesn't get us first, that climate change by 2100 is going to put us under. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Um, one of the problems with the, the, the difficulty we face with climate change, with that whole issue, is that it's been turned into an either-or situation. On the one hand, you have people who insist that it's fake, it's not happening, it's not real, go away. On the other hand, you have people you know, screaming, oh, it's going to kill us all next week, or, or you know, by 2100. And neither of those is correct. We know very, very well what is likely to happen as the climate rises. You look into paleoclimatology, it's a long word, but the Earth's climate has fluctuated dramatically in the prehistoric past. We have a lot of very good details about what happens when that takes place. Is it going to be easy? Not necessarily. Um, one, of the, one of the chapters in my book, Dark Age America, talks about the complexities when the Gulf Coast goes up as far north as Nashville, for example, mm-hmm. and when all of the cities, when, when Los Angeles and New York and so on are literally underwater. And that, by the way, that does not mean, as some science fiction novels like to put it, skyscrapers rising up from a landscape of canals or something. Salt water is death on steel. So right. those skyscrapers will come down. Hmm. So, yeah, um, but the point is, there has been, climate change is actually something that happens quite often in Earth's history. It's not, as far as we know, it hasn't been caused by an intelligent life form before, um, but there have been situations within the last 100, 150 million years, which is hardly an eye blink in, in terms of Earth's history, within the last 150 million years, there have been sudden climate changes more drastic than, than the one we seem to be setting off right now. And they did not exterminate all life on Earth. They didn't even exterminate a large life on Earth. Were they significant? Yes. Um, Are we in a world of hurt if we let this go on? Of course. And by the way, despite all of the yelling about, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. I mean, it's been, what, 20, 25 years since the first climate change treaty was passed. And everyone said, we're going to get on top of this. And in fact, our use of petroleum, of coal, of natural gas, and the carbon dioxide output has continued to go up in a straight line, (laughs) despite all the hand-waving. So at this point, it certainly looks as though nothing is going to be done despite all the screaming. But is it going to mean everyone's dead? No. It's going to mean some drastic changes. It's going to mean um, some severe crises at various points. But it's only one ingredient in a very complex picture of of why you know why we are in why we're in a state of rapid decline, why we are collapsing, and there there are other factors that are actually more significant. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. 
Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professional you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So that leads me to a question. You mentioned Go ahead. Cli- you mentioned climate change as one ingredient, right? And there's mm-hmm. a lot of these factors. Climate change won't affect only the US. It's going to affect the whole world and I of imagine course. with how interconnected we are mm-hmm. with our economic system and even in other ways we're such mm-hmm. a we've got such a global system that I'm curious mm-hmm. do you feel like collapse is something that is eminent for just America, or do you feel oh, like when it, no, 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 no. At, as it happens, it's going to be a global thing? Well, this this is this is actually this is one of those questions. The the yes and the United States is in a lot of trouble right now. The United States has made some serious mistakes. It is moving for political and economic reasons. It's moving toward a major crunch time, and whether we actually come out with an intact country or not is an open question. But that there's that curve, if you will, the same thing that happened to the British Empire in its time, to the Spanish Empire in its time, to the Ottoman Empire, and so on and so forth. So, you know, societies do these curves, they rise and they fall. But there's also this broader curve of industrial civilization as a whole, which is peaked and is in decline. And so you have, on the one hand, the mess that the United States is in, which is more or less unique to us. Then you have the mess that the industrial world is in as a whole, which is not unique to us, which is likely to take longer to play out, but ends much further down the curve. What I wrote about in Dark Age America was a combination of the two. I talked about the situation that the U.S. is in as a country. I mean, I live here, and it, it is my country. And But I also tried to frame it in terms of here's this broader picture of environmental crisis, of depletion of non-renewable and irreplaceable resources, of, of various other factors that are playing into this. So what I would expect, you know, if all of a sudden um, somebody pushes the button on the time machine and we're suddenly sitting in the year 2620, okay, Looking back on the on you know those those long that long vanished age, <laughs> okay, um, what what I would expect to see is that the United States and several other places end up kind of taking the first shocks of the ongoing decline, but then it hits here and then it hits there and the gradual crunch builds and bit by bit until we bottom out in a few centuries from now worldwide. So on that note, you know, you write a lot about the decline of the American empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I just finished reading decline and fall and mm-hmm. it, it's fascinating. And I'm curious, you, you talk a lot about um, the political situation. You talk a lot about um, the overseers and, and the elite class. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious mm-hmm. 
you know, it was been a while since you wrote that book, six or seven years. I'm curious where mm-hmm. you where you kind of find our situation in the United States right now politically. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, how much trouble do you want me to get into? You can say whatever you feel is true, and I'm <laughs> okay. fine with that. Um, my take is very simply that what we saw in the last over the last four or five years was an attempt by interests outside the elite to get a foothold in Washington and to try to change the direction of the country. That's what the whole Trump phenomenon was about. And the reason why people, the, why all the me, all the media and all the corporate interests and all of the, the swamp in DC screeched like gutshot banshees when Trump got into office was not that Trump was uniquely evil. It was because he didn't represent their interests. And so they got rid of him, you know, it in, in various complex ways. It is worth noting that during the time he was in office until the coronavirus thing sprang up, um, unemployment for people at the bottom for, you know, the lower end of the working class was better than it has ever basically ever been in American history because wealth was no longer being piled up in the hands of the ultra rich. And of course that was, that, that was, that was completely unacceptable. Um, what, where we are now is right back where we were. So, you know, that, that threat to the establishment has been dealt with, at least for the moment. And so here we go. Um, we have the, we have the turn, you know, we have a, you know, frankly, a geriatric sock puppet in the white house (laughs) and, um, and we have everyone insisting that, um, you know, we, now all that's over with. We get we can get back to um, scorning the working class and treating our momentary interests as though they're everything that matters. And exactly how that's going to play out is an interesting question, but I really doubt it's going to play out very well. Um, we have a one of the things that we did not have when I wrote um, Dark Age America is a nation that's bitterly divided and a nation where half the population at this point roughly is, is convinced that the existing system has been rigged against them and they, their votes do not count. Their opinions do not count. Their needs will not be met. Exactly what they do in response to that is an interesting question, but I doubt it's going to be, it's going to be particularly pleasant. Yeah. So do you feel like there is momentum in that direction towards whether it's a civil conflict or whether it's, you know, a further dis- delegitimacy of, of the government or what do you see mm-hmm. in that? In that regard. Um, we are in an extremely dangerous situation in the United States right now. An enormous number of people um, do not believe that the the current government of the U.S. is at all in, is going is at all amenable to helping them. Um, they see it as a corrupt kleptocracy run by by a privileged elite, and the evidence suggests that they're right, of course. And the problem there, of course, is that, well, it's the, my, my, my friend Dmitry Orloff, um, friend and fellow peak oil blogger, um, yeah. ha- wrote about this quite some time ago in his book, Reinventing Collapse. Um, every society depends on the, the sort of passive acquiescence of the masses. And we saw in the fall of the Eastern Bloc countries in Europe and the fall of the Soviet Union, what happens when the, the masses just turn their back and walk away when crisis hits and the response is, no, we're not going to do what you say. We're not going to save this country because this country is no longer worth saving. And down went Eastern Germany and down went country Poland and, you know, and down went the Soviet Union. The great grandchildren of the people flocked to the barricades in St. Petersburg in the revolution in 1917 to create the Soviet Union 
shrugged and said, meh, whatever. And down it went. We are dreadfully close to a situation like that here in the United States. If we hit a serious crisis at this point, um, an enormous number of Americans are going to go, it's not, you know, <laughs> they, they wouldn't, you know, what investment do I have in this country? Right. Why should I care? And the problem with that is that what takes its place may or may not be an improvement. And one way or another, we're likely to see, if, if that happens, we're likely to see some very, very traumatic times. Maybe if you don't mind, um, you know, reading mm-hmm. Dark Age America, you go, you go a little further into that idea. Um, mm-hmm. what, what kind of things do you foresee included in those very dark times? Well, it so much depends on what kind of crisis we get. Um, at this point, with the stock market at, frankly, irrational highs, and a lot, the dollar being the, the dollar being treated as a reserve currency when it no longer really has that status, the possibility of a severe economic um, unraveling cannot be ignored. Um, and that could lead to, again, there's the possibility of civil war. There's the possibility of domestic insurgency. Um, large parts of the South and the Mountain West are very well suited for guerrilla warfare. And the United States has studied how to fight guerrilla wars, but it's been a very long time since we won one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and domestic insurgency in this country would shred the U.S. economy and reduce much of it to third world conditions very quickly. And um, so you have that kind of situation. You have, you know, what happens if you end up with two groups of, you know, two groups of America who see the other as the enemy and, you know, start reaching for the guns. You have the possibility of various kinds of violence. There's, again, there's the economic problems. Um, there's our public health is already dismal. That could get a lot worse. And generally, it could, things could move very quickly into third world conditions here. And that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm looking at now. Beyond that, it would depend on what kind of crisis, what kind of response, and whether anybody is able to restore order afterwards. You know, you talk about um, with catabolic collapse. It seems like mm-hmm. you talk a lot about how we can kind of catch ourselves right at the expense of our future. We can stop the immediate crises. Um, I- to some to some extent, yes. Well, that's what we did in in the 1980s. And that's also what we did in the immediate aftermath of the 2008-2009 oil spike with all, with when fracking was brought on. We have proceeded to drain that dry. Um, we, can, we can buy a little more time by making the crisis worse further down the road. Sure. And so do you think that a crisis like the type that you're talking about, um, because those sound pretty dramatic, right? Do you, do mm-hmm. you feel like there is a a way to, to catch ourselves and kind of slow the fall, but again, to basically cement our place in the future as a collapsed society headed towards the dark age instead of the retrotopia. Unfortunately, yes. And I, I, you see, I think that's a lot of what's going on right now. Okay. A lot of the, very, the, the economic gimmickries that are being put into place and, you know, let's throw some money at this problem mm-hmm. rather than actually solving some of the systemic things that are making it happen. Yeah. These are ways to to pad things to to kick the can a little further down the road. And so you're speaking At mostly the, of stimulus and, and these types of credits that are among coming among many other things. Yes, and and the, the whole the, the whole business and the the frantic attempt to distract attention into um, 
the current political um, subject, subjects of discussion so that nobody talks about the things that actually matter. Right. You know, we've got to get all bent out of shape. I mean, I, the, certainly transgender people need to, have, need to have the same civil rights as the rest of us. No question there. But is their situation more important than the future of industrial society? Um, well, apparently so, or at least um, there's been a lot of talk about them and very little talk about what's ha- about where we're headed as a society. And I sometimes wonder if the media is doing that deliberately to try to you know find a hot button issue so that everyone talks about something else. So you're, what you're saying is that the focus and the prime, not just the primary focus, but the sole focus should mm-hmm. be on confronting and solving these problems and putting some of the others uh, to the side. I will say, I, I, they don't even need to go to the side, and I would say primary focus. I think we need to start as a nation and as a civilization by paying attention to where we actually are and what our problems are and what our hopes are, and to look at the realities of our situation in terms of energy, in terms of resources, in terms of what we can and cannot hope to accomplish. And within that framework, we can look at, okay, how can we solve some of these other problems? But that framework needs to come first. So we start in, there's a, a great example. Um, there is an, there is an eco magazine called Grist, which I read now and again when I have to. And they've just launched this climate fiction co- contest. They want cli-fi stories, okay? And what they want are stories of solutions to the climate problem that, are, that portray futures that are just so mouthwateringly delicious you want them right now. <laughs> Okay, now, first of all, the future is not a slice of cake. And although I suppose it's, it's not inappropriate, the, you know, because these are people who, who want to have their future and eat it too. So it's not, you know, I suppose it makes sense. But, but the fact that they're, they, they're stuck in this notion that the future has to be delightful. It has to give everyone everything they want. The idea of trade-offs. The idea of triage, the idea of what are uh, what are the available what are the available resources and what can we choose to do with them? This is nowhere on their radar screen, and that attitude is an attitude that leads straight into disaster. That's the attitude of walking right into a buzzsaw. You know, go play on the freeway because you've convinced yourselves that cars don't exist. This is this is a very widespread attitude these days throughout our elite classes. They are they've bought into the whole um, positive thinking shtick. Um, Barbara Ehrenreich has this great book called Bright Sighted, which talks about how posi- how this whole um, ideology of positive thinking has turned into a fertile source of disasters for the modern world. And this grist competition, I mean, they could be doing a contest to talk about. Okay, give it to us straight. How do we survive the climate thing while keeping as many of our ideals and freedoms intact as we possibly can? Let's talk about the conflicts. Let's talk about the challenges. Let's talk about um, how we made it by the skin of our teeth. That would be great, and it might actually be productive. Instead, it's going to be a bunch of cotton candy fantasies where everybody just sort of does what makes them happy, and the world works out wonderfully. I outgrew that when I was six. (laughs) And it seems it seems like that sort of thinking comes about. Um, it, it's like you said, the elite seem to have kind of fallen into that as well. And I I personally wonder uh-huh. if that is because they know that that's what wins them elections. You're not going to find somebody who can run on a platform of um, you know deindustrializing so that we can save the planet sort of thing. Um, 
it wins to say that with the future or with me, the future looks bright. Um, you see, I'm not sure there, there's something in between those two, because I think one of the reasons that so many people are and distrust the political process and distrust the media, why so many people have simply lost faith in the whole system, is that they hear all of these en- all this endless drivel about the wonderful future that we're going to imagine for you while the present gets worse and worse, and they know that it's garbage. I, I, one of the things that I suspect is that if, if we were actually to get an honest call to shared sacrifice and shared sacrifice, which does not mean the upper 20% get everything and the lower 80% get screwed, an actual authentic call to shared sacrifice would get an enormous positive response. It's just that it would not get a positive response from the people in the upper 20% who are profiting mightily from the existing order. And since they control the media, and they are the media, and they have a, they ha, you know, the people in the in the professional managerial classes are, you know, they have the pre the the um, the preeminent power in America today, and so what they say, at least for the moment, goes. So, I don't think it's a matter of what would win elections under normal circumstances, but it's a matter of what the elites are willing to hear. And how do you think we get to a point where they're willing to hear? What gets us going forward? Well, there, there's, there, there's a good way, there's an intermediate way, and there's a really dreadful way. Um, the good way is that the pressure of events becomes so difficult for them that eventually enough of them start saying, oh, crap, we're going to have to deal with the real world. Hmm. And things like that have happened in history, so I don't think it's impossible. Um, unlikely but impossible. The intermediate way is that enough people outside the elite class are able to build a sufficiently strong base of political and economic power that the oust, the current, that the current elites are ousted. That happens all the time in history. Um, and then we get a government that, actually, that is actually willing to deal with the real world and that can call for shared sacrifice and actually get it. Um, the bad way is domestic insurgency, civil war, a lot of people die. Interesting. So the difference so I'm sure the... there are I'm sure there are other options. I'm sure there are sure. many other options. The future is full, but those are the three that come immediately to mind. I uh, frankly, I would really prefer the one of the first two. So the difference between the second one you mentioned and the third, um, mm-hmm. what is the difference in achieving that? Because in the second one, you said you get you get a big enough group of people who can essentially take over. How do you, you, how do you, you achieve that? You achieve, you achieve that by taking, by taking control of the political process. You achieve that by starting, at, starting with local and state elections, and you simply reach, um, reach the point that you can vote enough of the schmucks out of office and start making changes. That's what happened in this country in 1932, when, um, when the then professional managerial class had run this country into the ground in the wake of the, in the, wake of the stock market crash of 29. You had um, Franklin Roosevelt who was himself filthy rich, but who realized that, you know, things are going to have to change or there's going to be a revolution in this country and who proceeded to push through the new deal and make a lot of desperately needed changes. He was hated by the privileged classes in his time. They loathed him, but he saved the country and he also saved their butts. And so that's an example of the kind of thing that could happen. Um, you know, and we, we've, we saw um, we've we've had kind of a first very tentative version of that um, with the whole Trump phenomenon, but uh, you know Trump was not really well suited to deal with it. He is not a politician, and um, we'll see what happens next. 
But I think, basically, there are ways to change the system short of civil war. Thank you, God. And, <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, and uh, if with any luck, we can manage them. I want to talk about inequality in the country because, okay. um, you know, we, we talk about 1930s and, and where we've come from since then. But obviously, the last 50 or 60 years have been um, a severe widening gap in mm-hmm. in financial inequality and wealth inequality mm-hmm. in the country. What role mm-hmm. does inequality play and how do you see that shifting over time? Okay. Inequality, um, economic inequality is normal in human societies. It's normal in primate societies. You'll find it in baboon troops. But it inc- the more it increases, the more vulnerable society becomes to cataclysmic change, precisely because the people who have less and less have less and less reason to, to support the existing order. And this is, the, this is the problem with elites. Elites get stupid when they get rich. And they forget that their survival and their power depends on the willingness of a lot of poorly paid schmoes. To, who are, you know, if, there were, if the poorly paid schmoes follow orders, all is well. If they stop following orders, well, again, we saw that in the Soviet Union in 1991 or in some other contexts where a lot more blood was shed. Um, extreme inequality very often leads to major social turmoil, whether by political or, or by violent means. And so one of the major things that's going on here is we're seeing a situation where um, our elite classes have lost, have lost track of the fact that they, can, they, they are cutting their own throats. And who knows, maybe they'll get a clue the way, again, FDR was filthy rich, and he recognized that the rich of his time were cutting their own throats, and he, he led an organized movement away from that, and we had, um, you know, um, most of a century of relative peace between the classes as a result. Hmm. So do you, you feel like there's any chance of that happening again now, or do you feel like the establishment's so entrenched that... It depends on, it depends on how bad the problems get. Um, the reason FDR was able to succeed was because the Great Depression demonstrated that the existing system was not working. And if we slam face first into a single, uh, similar economic crisis or some other t- type of crisis, um, that could be enough of a enough of a jolt. So we talk about things happen. Go ahead. Yeah, you you mentioned kind of a jolt to the elite class, um, mm-hmm. but even just to like the general population, mm-hmm. what do you think would be required to get people to the point where they, they can recognize what's coming and actually make a change? Um, that's not likely to happen with a jolt. I think basically the jo- we, we could manage a redis- some degree of redistribution of income and of assets, um, we could manage a decrease in the uh, in the economic um, imbalance in the United States. That's one thing. In terms of people coming to terms with the reality of decline and collapse, that's a much slower process, and that has to start um, in a different place. Um, there's a common saying these days that politics is downstream from culture, the idea being that first changes happen in the culture, and then that makes possible or necessary changes in politics. But culture is downstream from the imagination. What people imagine about the future shapes the culture and then their politics. And so, that, to my mind, the changes that really matter right now are things like, of all things, the Hunger Games. You have there, the, the Hunger Games, you have 
an impoverished, you have a society that is impoverished, brutally impoverished, and exploited by a corrupt ruling class. And so that enables people, especially the young people to whom it was mostly, it was mostly marketed, to say, hold it, this is looking really familiar just now. And so the place where decline has to find a foothold, the place where that idea has to spread, must begin with the imagination. It must begin with stories, with narratives, with films and movies and novels and, and, and graphic novels and things like that. And that's something, of course, I've been trying to do. A lot of my fiction writing has had that, uh, that as, as either a minor theme or a major theme, in the case of Retrotopia, or my, my um, de-industrial fiction novel, Stars Reach. Um, trying to give people a set of ideas, a set of images, things that they can fit, in, fit their imagination around and go, you know, this makes sense. That's how that change has to happen. Shocks won't do it. Shifts in imagination will, or could. Will they? I don't know yet. It's a great answer. So maybe to wrap things up here, I got one more question for you. Go ahead. Um, a lot of our listeners who are new to this and trying to kind of sort things out, they mm-hmm. maybe tend to get anxious about the future, obviously mm-hmm. thinking about what, what's going to happen in their own lifetimes. Mm-hmm. So if, if you had to take a whack at it, if you had to guess, what mm-hmm. does the next 20 to 30 years look like uh, in our lives? Okay. The next 20 to 30 years, um, first of all, the, the major factor about the next 20 to 30 years is that all the rules that you're being told by official voices, whether those are high school or college um, counselors and, and advisors, whether it's the mass media, whoever it is, all those rules don't work anymore. They haven't worked for a while now. Most of the people I know who are thriving work for themselves. They did not get a job from someone else. Most of the people I know who have a job are miserable because it's, the conditions are getting worse and worse and they're not getting paid enough. Um, the next 20, 30 years are a time where you need to start thinking for yourself. They're a time when the, official, the officially approved rules do not work, when the officially approved narratives falsify your experience, when there is that cognitive dissonance, that gap between what the world is supposed to look like and what you actually see on a day-to-day basis. That's a, that's a difficult thing, but it can be a source of power. The next 20 or 30 years are a time when the total amount of available wealth of all kinds is gradually decreasing, but you can still find ways to, to, to get by. If you're, if you're paying attention and if you ignore the, the allegedly well-meant advice from the establishment, from the defenders of the status quo, the next 20 or 30 years are a time of, of you know, regular crises. You have to be nimble. You have to be light on your feet, but you can get through this. And one of the things we know from the history of decline and collapse in the past is that you have periods of crisis followed by periods of relative stabilization. So any time that we we run into whether there's a major economic crisis, whether we go through another round of political convulsions, hang on, there will be a period of stabilization on the other side. You just have to get there. And so this is a time where knowing how to do things for yourself, knowing how to how to get by on less, knowing how to well in in the phrase that I've that I've used in some of my blogs, collapse now and avoid the rush. Um, these are these are these are skills that can save your rump, and um, if you are quick and nimble 
and pay attention and ignore the the advice from the stat, from the defenders of the status quo, you can get through this and have a happy life. But it's going to be an adventure. John Michael Greer, this has been awesome. We've enjoyed this well, thank time. You. You've been fabulous. Thank you so well, thank much you. for coming on. Oh, wouldn't would not have missed it. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.